Every day we hear headlines about what somebody else has done wrong or lied about. As a refreshing contrast to that, Asbury President Kevin Brown has written a book called Design for Good, Rediscovering the Idea, Language, and Practice of Virtue. Today we want to talk about that book and the virtuous life. What is the place of the study of virtue at an institution like Asbury University? If we think more broadly about the purpose of a university, not only does it have a place, but it becomes absolutely necessary. Welcome to Belonging and Becoming, a podcast from Asbury University. I'm your host, Doug Walker, professor of media communication, and I sat down earlier with Asbury University president, Dr. Kevin Brown. We discussed how this study of virtue has so much more value to today's students than simply learning ethical theories. Here's that interview. Virtue's been written about for thousands of years, from Aristotle to in the Bible, so it's been used lots of different ways. Can you begin by telling us, just so we get the context of what you're thinking of, what you mean when you say virtue? Absolutely. You're correct that virtue is a word that has been understood in a variety of different ways throughout time. Certainly, there there is a classical definition, and you mentioned it with Aristotle, that virtue is a mean or an average that lies between two vices, a vice of too much um, excessiveness and a vice of too little deficiency. So a classic example would be courage. If you have too much courage, well, you're reckless. And if you have too little courage, you're a coward. And so a virtue lies in between these two vices. Uh, It is the mean between the two and so that, that is a, a classical definition. And when we, when we look at the cardinal virtues that Aristotle mentioned, this would be courage, justice, prudence, and temperance. Uh, they are cardinal because uh, I believe that that word cardinal has a Latin phrase uh, that means hinge. And so all other capacities hinge upon these virtues. Added to this by Aquinas were what we describe as the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. But the definition that I like the most comes from Augustine. And in his book, The City of God, he says, it is the brief but true definition of virtue to say that it is the order of love. So ordered love is Augustine's definition of virtue, or ordered desire, ordinate affections, uh, loving what is truly lovely, pursuing that which is truly worthy of pursuit, desiring what is truly desirable. So these, these are the, the common definitions that we hear, uh, but I, I try to bias the reader towards Augustine's definition. Great. I'm sure you, like me, uh, having been around higher education for a few years, have heard lots of definitions of what the goal of higher education should be. Uh, Everything from to broaden students' minds, to prepare students to be leaders uh, in their home as well as in their communities, or to help individuals get better paying or rewarding jobs. Where does learning about the virtuous life fit into all of that? How is it relevant today? That is a great question. I love that you connect the purpose of a university 
to this question of where does virtue fit within that? Because if we distill a university down simply to it exists only to prepare our students for a vocation or careerism, then it may not have much of a place. Um, if we think more broadly about the purpose of a university, not only does it have a place, but it becomes absolutely necessary. Now, I do think institutions like Asbury exist to prepare our students to go out into the workplace and to add value, uh, to find a job, but also that they can exercise these capacities in ways that bring light to the world around them, uh, that they serve, they add value, they are generative, uh, and they do this in a way that is God-glorifying. The Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good work and glorify your Father in heaven. In 2009, there was a, a fascinating article that was put out by The Economist. Now, uh, this magazine is is not a religious magazine mm -hmm. uh, by any means, uh, but on the front there was a, a picture, and it was Adam and Eve uh, in the garden listening to an iPod. And so you have these different images uh, speaking to different things, and the the headline article was about progress, and the article itself went into a defense of the, the moment that we were in, uh, that in 2009, the, the beginning of the 21st century, uh, we were further along than any other period of time in human history. We have more stuff, we have more education, we have better mortality rates, uh, we have more technological output and productivity as a function of that. However, our social bonds are falling apart uh, the world around us is crumbling. We still see violence. We still see greed. Uh, we still see contempt for one another. And so the article was inviting a question, what is progress? And it was really fascinating to, to read this in The Economist that can we really measure progress in material terms alone? And I think the answer is unequivocally no. And so for institutions like ours that do want to uh, offer progress to the world, we have to incorporate character, moral excellence, and virtue into that definition. John Locke wrote, if virtue is lost in a young man, it is seldom recovered. Is there something particularly important about reaching young women and men at this stage of life as they go through university with the essence and importance of a virtuous life? That's a great question. I, I mean, of course, I would want to say that no one is ever fully lost, but I do think there is a vulnerability that a college student brings with them that makes them particularly malleable in a way that we need to take very serious the considerations about uh, how they are developed, the, the formation of the student. I've said on this podcast, and I say quite often, that we do not exist simply for the transfer of information, but rather for the formation, the transformation, the maturation of, of our students, uh, that they are becoming. Uh, it's not simply what they are learning, but it's who they are becoming as a function of their college experience. And so students are away from home. Uh, they're socially vulnerable in ways that they haven't been before. They're intellectually vulnerable. They're morally and spiritually vulnerable in ways that they may not be otherwise. And so I wouldn't say that there's a window that gets closed thereafter, but it does get shut more than it might otherwise. Mm. 
And so I think it's a very, very important time because it's such a formative time and an important time to discuss and to convey and communicate uh, what does it mean to live a good life. And this is an opportunity uh, for the student to really contemplate this question uh, and to organize their life around what it means to live out an excellent life, a morally excellent life, and a life worth living. That's helpful. Thank you. I think we can transition into talking some more specifically about your book. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, but again, uh, the title is Design for Good, Rediscovering the Idea, Language, and Practice of Virtue. There's a lot in that. And can you describe briefly each of those elements, the ideas, language, and practice of virtue? Yes, absolutely. The idea of virtue is simply the idea that we inhabit an ordered reality. I like to compare this with, I think it was Bertrand Russell, who a few hundred years ago made the statement that, that we are an accidental collocation of atoms. Uh, what is a human? An accidental collocation of atoms. When you think of uh, a philosopher like Epicurus, uh, which I think this is important because so much of our society is more Epicurean than we might realize. Uh, his teacher was Democritus. Democritus believed that the world was just atoms. We're, we're all atoms just kind of uh, collecting and colliding in the void. And so if that is your um, meta-narrative, if you will, your story above all stories or your story that speaks into all other stories, uh, that may lead you to govern your life in a very particular way. Uh, but what if there's a different story? What if there's a story that we are created uh, by a deliberate creator and that we inhabit an ordered universe um, created by that creator? Uh, well, now there's a different way I need to think about governing my life. So that is the idea of virtue. The language of virtue is simply to say that our words reflect uh, the world around us, what's within us and what's outside of us. Uh, Adam Smith, uh, the, he famously wrote um, The Wealth of Nations in 1776. This is kind of a blueprint for modern Western capitalism. Uh, but interestingly, he wasn't an economist. Uh, he was more of a moral philosopher. And so one of his uh, recognitions about human nature is that we exchange. And moreover, we don't simply exchange goods and services, but we exchange sentiments. And I, I really like that expression. Uh, we exchange sentiments. And so if this is the, the nature of humans to exchange with one another, what does it mean to convey and communicate uh, in a way that reflects the reality of an ordered world? And finally, uh, the practice of virtue. And there's much that can be said about this, uh, but and, and I can talk about this more later. We are becoming and we are practicing something every moment. And so uh, we tend to think that we start from a neutral spot and then we go and practice and become something. But the, the reality is the very thoughts that we have, the words that we use, the items that we, we read, um, the thousands upon thousands of many advertisements and images that we see on a daily basis, these things are making us into something. Um, I find it interesting when students might say, they have a biblical worldview. Well, that's great. Um, but I'd like to compare how much Bible someone may read to say how much Netflix they watch or, or anything else. And really, you'll get a sense of what is 
creating or building their worldview thereafter. We are always becoming something. So when we talk about the practice of virtue, it is being very deliberate about those practices. Uh, James K. Smith may call them liturgies as a love-shaping practice uh, that will form us into the kind of people that we want to be formed into. You mentioned how much time we spend, uh, may spend with Netflix or whatever <laughs> else it may be, and it reminded me of an element of the book, uh, which I, by the way, have used in a graduate class, uh, elements of that for our discussion, and have enjoyed it. So this is kind of fun for me to be able to talk to you about it a bit more. But in that, you shared an example about a young lady who I think was probably visiting a, a university making a decision and who asked a question about uh, whether that university, Christian university, would use uh, English texts that had questionable language such as cursing in it. Um, can you share with us how you responded uh, to her? Yes. So the question related to do you allow texts that may have unsavory material that may not be consistent with um, uh, the, the Christian tradition or worldview, and you mentioned cursing, and I think that was her specific example. And I, I took a step back uh, to say that actually that, that's not really the right question. There's a, a wonderful passage in Matthew 19, uh, those, those first verses, where we see this exchange between Jesus and the lawyers, the Pharisees, and they ask him about divorce. And he says, well, uh, from the beginning, a man will leave his family and a woman will leave her family and they will be joined together. And what God has joined together, may no man put asunder. Uh, but then they say, but that's not enough. What about Moses? Now, Moses permitted divorce. What do you think about that, Jesus? And Jesus says, Moses permitted divorce because your hearts were hardened, but from the beginning, it was not so. And what we see in this exchange is the lawyers are asking about what is permissible. And Jesus is saying, this is the design. And then the lawyers again, what is permissible? And Jesus saying, you're asking the wrong question. This is the design. And so if the design is about what does it mean for us to be whole? Uh, what, is, what does it mean for us to be holistic? Uh, Jesus in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have the abundant life. Uh, the, the all-around life is how we'd understand that expression. Uh, one Greek use is equidistant, uh, the complete life. And so my response to that young lady was, we want to think about material that will best allow us to apprehend and pursue and embody wholeness, not simply about what is permissible. In other words, if we're asking about right and wrong, uh, we're missing uh, these, these binary categories of right and wrong. Rather, how do we get to, how do we iterate towards what is whole? How do we be complete? How do we live abundantly? Uh, that might sound like sidestepping her question a little bit, uh, and there's certainly some nuance there. Um, but a better question is, what educational paradigm will best allow us to achieve wholeness, the kind of people God desires for us to be? I actually wrote down a quote here where you talked about uh, in Design for Good saying, we might say that virtue is a life of character. It is about organizing, prioritizing, and habituating ourselves to be fulfilled 
whole and complete. Mm-hmm. And so that concept, and you just mentioned the idea of being complete, uh, one of the Psalms that I memorized a while ago was Psalm 15, which talks about uh, a person who walks with integrity. Mm. And integrity or integer is that idea of wholeness. So I wonder if you could expound a little bit more about the significance of, you know, what it means to be a whole person as we think about uh, or be a complete person as we think about this virtuous life. Absolutely. When we talk about being whole, we are presupposing that we were made a particular way. And so in Matthew 5, 48, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, that, that word perfect is related to the Greek telos uh, or teleology, as we might say. Um, so it's not, it doesn't actually uh, read as faultless uh, as, as we might think but rather live into the design that you were meant to live into. I think uh, the message says, live out your God-created identity uh, for that particular verse. Now, the word perfect is still the right word uh, that, that they chose there. But what I really like in this is this notion of, of teleology, of doing the thing that we were designed to do. In my class, I've given the example of a flute and if I were to say, is this flute good? Or even to your point, is this flute whole? You have to step back and ask another question, what is a flute? What is the purpose of a flute? And if I were to say, the purpose of a flute is to produce beautiful music, well, now we have a standard by which to evaluate the goodness or the wholeness of that flute. Is it doing the thing that it was designed to do? So we might ask, is it possible to... Uh, smash a hard-to-reach cockroach with a flute? Or is it possible to stir my coffee with a flute? Hopefully not after you <laughs> smash the cockroach. The answer is yes, you could do those things, but, but that is not the fulfillment of its teleology. That would be bizarre to us. And so if we buy into this notion of teleology, uh, now we can ask a question, what is the purpose of a human? Well, we have a narrative arc for this in the Christian faith tradition. Uh, We exist to bear God's image and to live in communion with Him and to live in communion with others. Uh, God is loving. He's relational. He's creative. He's productive. We can uh, exhibit and co-create with God and uh, offer these very capacities and image God through these capacities. And moreover, we can find this rest and fulfillment in God, and we can find meaning and satisfaction in our communion with others. Um, this is this notion of justice as righteousness, a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. Um, so this is the, the idea of wholeness, uh, that we were made as a, as a human creature that has a teleology. And when we live into the best version of ourselves, we experience this kind of fullness or satisfaction that we may not otherwise have. We've all come out of this past political season where we have heard lots of talks about ethics and unethical and uh, ethical behavior and so on. Where does virtue fit into this? Is virtue the same thing as ethics or of being ethical? The two words are certainly used interchangeably. Uh, A virtuous person is an ethical person. Ethical person is a virtuous person. And I don't have a problem with that. Uh, But I, I do try to make a distinction between ethics and virtue. Ethics is often 
expressed in a way that uh, makes it seem cognitive. And what I mean by that is if you ask the question, what should I do? Uh, some ethical dilemma is proposed, and then we ask, what is the right thing to do? By the way, uh, there are so many business ethics books where this is, this is the, the setup. Um, here's some ethical dilemma. So-and-so uh, works at a company and they're hitting all their goals, but they're not supposed to go to an external website. Um, but is it okay if they go to ESPN.com? You know, something simple. Uh, and what, what should this person do? And I, I don't find that very interesting for a variety of reasons. Um, so ethics in this sense is deliberation over the appropriate action. And this makes it an intellectual exercise that can actually be divorced from ethical activity. And let me give a few examples of that. There, there's a philosopher named Eric Schwitzgabel, and he did a study years ago on are ethics teachers more ethical than the students that they teach? Now, I'm not sure what the methodology was, uh, but he discovered the answer is no. Uh, they're, they're the same. He, he told kind of a funny story, uh, uh, hypothetically, what this could look like is uh, a teacher and they're teaching on um, why it is wrong to eat meat and why you should be a vegetarian. And then the class ends and they go to the cafeteria and they eat a big cheeseburger. Uh, so yeah, we would look at that and say, well, that's kind of odd. I remember a, an interview several years ago uh, with a Marxist philosopher named Jerry Cohen. And I had read a couple of books by Jerry Cohen. And he was being interviewed. And he had just written a book at that time called, If You're an Egalitarian, How Come You're So Rich? And so uh, egalitarian in the sense of this kind of material egalitarian, uh, the belief that people should have an equal basket of goods uh, available to them. And this is kind of a human right and so the interview was going on, and the interviewer in the middle of the interview, you could tell parted ways a little bit with the notes. And they said, you know, here we are. Uh, I believe they were at Cambridge. We're at Cambridge, this beautiful area. We're in this huge facility. It's palatial building. It's old. It's traditional. You effectively have servants uh, at your disposal, giving you whatever you would like. You make a ton of money. So... Jerry Cohen, if you're an egalitarian, how come you're so rich? It was a very bold question for an interview like this. Mm -hmm. His answer was startling. He said, I'm not a moral person. He said, I think that's the right way to think about it, but I'm not a moral person. And if I was more morally excellent, I would be able to live up to uh, the ideals that I espouse, but I'm not a moral person. Wow. Next question. <laughs> so we, we see this, this gap between what is ethical as this kind of uh, something we give intellectual assent to, and then this capacity to actually live it out. And this is where virtue is very different. Uh, the, the Latin of virtue is, is virtus, and it means something like masculine power. And I don't mean masculine like eating steaks and throwing football. I mean, uh, like capacity. Uh, so David Gill is an author who, who's written about this. And he, he said, virtues in this sense aren't just values, uh, traits that I feel are worthwhile, uh, but they are powers. They are real capabilities of achieving something that is good. Richard John Newhouse uh, has written, 
Ethics is a pale and sickly term having to do with theories of value. I thought that was a fascinating statement in light of this this David Gill uh, expression that ethics is pale and sickly. If it only rattles around in our head, but it doesn't flow through our heart and eventually our hands into real actions. So in one sense, uh, virtue is a power, a capacity, but it's also a desire for the good. Again, to go back to this Augustine definition of virtue as ordered love or ordered affections, that we, we should be aiming our affections toward uh rightly ordered desires and impulses, not just having the right knowledge, uh, not just having the right information, but the right affections and the right desires, Uh, more classical moral um, philosophy, uh, the right thing at the right time with the right motive or or for the right reason. Um, I've told my students before about a, a guy I used to work with who was boasting about uh, showing kindness uh, to an elderly woman that he knew, uh, so that she would put him in her will, uh, and he would get money when he died. Uh, his timing was very good, and if we looked at his actions, we would say, oh, how honorable. But as soon as we learn his motive, his disordered affections, uh, it, it makes the entire act rather repugnant, <laughs> uh, because it comes from uh, such a, an ugly place, uh, this, uh, the, this warped motive for doing what he's doing. So that is where I would make a distinction between virtue and just ethical activity or a really uh, ethical evaluation. I wanted to, we've talked on an institutional level, we've talked on a personal and societal level. I wanted to include one question because we're into January now and people are thinking about the new year. Uh, and including their own sets of resolutions. How might our resolutions be different this year if our goal is to live a virtuous life? Well, I've never thought about applying this to New Year's resolutions. That's a really great question. Here's what I would say. I appreciate the distinction between uh, what should I do and who should I be. And I think it is very important to start with who do I want to be, Uh, not just simply what behaviors do I want to exhibit, uh, but who do I want to be. The theologian Allison Milbank has given the example of uh, Hogwarts at Harry Potter. Now, I've not read the Harry Potter books, uh, but she says at Hogwarts, they don't teach you how to cast a good spell. They teach you how to be a good wizard. Because it's not about casting spells, it's about being a good wizard. Why? Because being a good wizard means you will cast a good spell. And so it's starting with uh, agency, uh, not simply with the action. I would add this twist, though. We often think about behaviors in the sense of how they relate to um, uh, who we want to be, so being and doing. And so... um, We start with this idea of being, and then that will affect what we do. I want to lose weight, therefore I will go and work out at the gym a couple of times a week. But there's just as much evidence I would mention to suggest that uh, doing can also affect being. I like to give the example of my father who went to donate blood once, and they said, wow, you have really high blood pressure. 
and cholesterol and other problems. And he radically changed his diet overnight, radically. Years later, we were uh, at a restaurant and there were burgers and pizza and fries. And I said, do you miss this food? He said, I don't miss it at all. I have come to love uh, the, the salmon and the salads and the yogurt that I end up eating. I didn't at first, but I've come to love it. And this very much speaks to this idea. Um, our being can affect our doing, but our doing can also affect our being, um, or we become what we repeatedly do. So I think anytime we're considering a resolution, we also need to keep that in mind, even if we don't enjoy it. Uh, this is what it means to habituate something into our life. And it's not simply starting with who we want to be and then doing something, but also we can make ourselves into something by virtue of what we do. That's all we have time for from that interview today. But we do invite you to listen in February when we continue with part two of this discussion of the virtuous life. Before then, in our next podcast episode, we'll turn to Bolivia, where nine out of 10 women are expected to be victims of violence in their lifetimes. Asbury graduates Andy and Andrea Baker work in Bolivia among the poor. We'll hear about their ministry as Dr. Brown will talk with Andrea Baker next time on Belonging and Becoming.